0: I'm Carrie. And I'm Amy, and you are listening to The Perks of Being a Book Lover.
1: This is a show where two friends chat about books and reading with another book lover, and we find book lovers everywhere. Talking about books is one of our favorite things to do besides not having any plans on a weekend, which hasn't happened lately, but for God's sake, it better happen
0: soon. Or you're going to explode because you want to do a whole bunch of nothing. And we may be a little biased in thinking that reading people are the coolest people. We have two guests this week, and they are members of the same family. Jeremy and Hermione Tankard are a father-daughter duo behind the graphic novel series, Yorick and Bones. Yorick, as any Shakespeare lover knows, is the skull that Hamlet speaks to in the play of the same name. And in this graphic novel, Yorick is unearthed by a friendly dog, and they begin a series of adventures. In the second book, Yorick and Bones meet up with some familiar faces from Shakespeare's plays.
1: Jeremy and Hermione have a fun story behind their books. Hermione was in high school when her dad recruited her to join him on this journey to tell the story of Yorick and his little dog because Hermione has long been a Shakespeare fan and has an uncanny ability to translate anything into iambic pentameter. They combine forces to create a fun series that helps gently introduce kids and adults to Shakespeare characters. But first,
0: first. so you were a guest at the Louisville Book Festival this weekend.
1: I was. And it was it was very cool. I enjoyed it. Got to talk to some people. They asked questions and got to tell the story about how we got into this and, you know, some of our responsibilities and what you bring to it. I said, Amy brings the enthusiasm and I bring the, are you effing crazy? That's, that's what I bring <laughs> that's, to it. Yeah,
0: that's a, that, that pretty much sums up our working relationship. <laughs> I was not able to do it with you. I was away with some friends on a weekend that we'd had planned for many, many months. I couldn't really get out of that, but I was glad that you were able to participate. And you're like a big rock star now, you know.
1: I guess, except without the drugs (laughs) and the excitement
0: (laughs) and the leather (laughs) and the leather. Well, uh, when I was away on my trip, I wanted to mention a game that we played. It's a party game, but I'm mentioning this game because we're getting into holiday season where people are trying to think of gift ideas. And this would be a really awesome game for families to play or even if you're an adult and want to play with other couples or just friends It's called Telestrations, and it's basically like the game Telephone, you know, where you whisper Mm -hmm. something in somebody's ear, and then they whisper it to the next person, and then by the end, you look to see whether the thing that was whispered is the same thing that comes out in the end. Well, this is the same idea, but with drawing. (laughs) So there's like a little booklet, and they're all like um, laminated white pages, right? And you have uh, dry erase pens, you write the word on the first page, and then you hand it to the next person, and they draw that. And then they hand it to the next person and the next person has to write the word of what they think the drawing before it was. And you go on like this, alternating people until the very end. And then you see if the word that comes out in the end is the same thing that was written in the beginning. And it can be really funny. And like I said, I think it would be good for families with kids as well as adults. So there's a a game idea for people out there.
1: Okay, I'm confused. So Mm -hmm. the first person writes the word. Right. The next person draws the picture. Right. The next person writes a word of
0: of what they think that the picture, picture is.
1: Okay. And then what does the next person do?
0: They draw a picture of the word that the person before them oh. wrote down. You see what right. I mean? So,
1: gotcha. 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 Okay. So okay. it goes,
0: you know, back and forth and back and forth and back. You know, it's word, gotcha. picture, word, picture, word.
1: Gotcha. Picture, gotcha. Depending gotcha.
0: on how many people you have. Gotcha. Right. Very cool. Yeah, good Christmas idea there. But then when we came back yesterday, we went to a few open houses in town because we are thinking about moving to a different part of Louisville in the spring and summer of next year. And we wanted to kind of get an idea of what we could get for our money in the areas that we have in mind. So, Okay,
1: wait a minute. I didn't know this. You what? came home. Well, no, 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 no. I know that you're looking to move. What I'm saying, I didn't know this. I didn't know that you came home yesterday from a, a weekend and then went house hunting? Well, in the same yes. day?
0: Yeah, but we really we kind of got a late start. We only really did it for like an hour. And all the houses were sort of in the same area. I think I think we we only went into two houses. That
1: seems like so. a lot. No, I'm tired. That's too much. <laughs> Exhausted. <laughs> too much for one day. That's just, that's just crazy. You just was, you live good. a different life from me, Amy. You just, you just <laughs> go 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 i go 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 and then i complain about it oh it makes me so tired next weekend i'm doing nothing that was really interesting you talking about all that stuff and so let's listen to people who are more interesting than us talking about our boring weekends let's talk to jeremy and hermione jeremy and hermione tankard thank you both so much for joining us we're so excited
2: Thank you for having us. It's a, Thank you it's a for having us.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so last year, Carrie introduced me to your first book, Yorick and Bones. And she reads a lot of graphic novels. I do not. But I fell in love with it immediately. A lot because of the dog, I'll be honest. And so... This year, when we were thinking about possible guests, we both were just so excited that you all agreed to be guests on our show because we love your books. But we always like to ask our guests about their childhood and their teenage reading habits. So were both of you big readers uh, during that time of your life?
2: I was not. I was a classic reluctant reader. I hated reading until I was about 30. So I was like, when I go into schools to talk to kids, I always say, if you want to know what irony is, the fact that I'm here (laughs) talking to you about being an author, because I hated reading. So no, I I read books because I had to in school. I enjoyed them when I read them, but there's always a million other things I would rather do. But Hermione, she was a reader.
3: I was a reader. I learned how to read to myself because the parents refused to read me the Rainbow Magic fairy books, um, (laughs) and I really liked them. But I read a lot of books about fairies and
0: occasionally about other subjects. Jeremy, what happened at 30 that suddenly you decided that you liked reading?
2: Uh, I'm still trying to figure that out. I've got a couple (laughs) of guesses. One was that's probably about when publishers started getting really interested in my work Mm. and asked me to be a writer. And I'm like, wow, I know nothing about writing, so maybe I should uh, pay attention when I'm reading, and started reading a little bit more carefully than I had before. And the other was just giving myself permission to read what I would rather read, which in my case was Lord of the Rings style fantasy books rather than the highfalutin high literature that I always saw my parents reading. So I'd always had grown up with this idea that reading is a serious thing, like. And my mom, like, she read a lot of whodunit kind of murder mysteries, but. She's also a connoisseur of quote unquote literature. So I think that was my example. And finally, it was giving myself that permission to say, okay, you know what? I don't feel like reading that stuff. I want to read The Lord of the Rings and similar books. And yeah, it totally turned me on to enjoying reading.
0: And Hermione, I have to ask, what was it about the fairy books that your parents wouldn't read those to you? Those mean parents?
3: I'm not sure. I think my dad didn't (laughs) like the illustrations.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Dad, is it true? (laughs) Uh,
2: Yes. (laughs) But I have also, I don't like putting down books by other people. So they were not books that I enjoyed and they were so mass produced but lots of kids love them. So far be it for me to deny them their enjoyment of the books, but they were not for me. I think I read one chapter of one book to Hermione and looked at her and said, this is terrible. (laughs) I'm not going to read anymore, but if you want to read it, you go right ahead.
1: Jeremy, you're the author illustrator. And I think I've even heard the term author straighter used to refer to you. Yep. Your children's picture books date back to 2007. I think I have that right. So yep. how did you get into the picture book business? Tell us a little bit about that.
2: It was one of those fairy tale kind of experiences getting into publishing where I had been shopping my illustration work around to children's publishers because despite being a reluctant reader, making illustrated books was a lifelong childhood dream. Um, And to my surprise, a lot of the big New York publishers were interested. So I went there to see how serious they were about it. Um, I had some lovely meetings and then a couple of editors uh, these big publishers said, you know what, Jeremy, we don't think you are actually an illustrator. You're actually a writer, you just don't know it yet. So they encouraged me to put my writing hat on, see how it fit. It didn't fit very well, but I'm willing to try anything. And the offers they made were so good that basically they said, we'll let you come straight to us, the editors, rather than going through our normal submissions procedures and we will happily walk you through whatever you've done and offer you feedback and criticism. And I guess I was just old enough to realize how good that offer was. And I knew how competitive it is getting into children's publishing. So took a couple of writing classes, started pitching manuscripts at them and getting feedback from them. And like I wasn't looking to be a writer at all. But got into it by accident because a couple of editors said, we think you're a writer. And it might be Hmm. quicker route to being published will be to write and illustrate your own book.
0: So was it always your professional plan to try to illustrate children's books? Or did you have something else in mind Uh, with, with art originally?
2: I went to art university because I had two chief interests. One was children's picture books, which I never really outgrew, and the other was Marvel comic books. I would have been happy either drawing Spider-Man for a living or drawing children's books for a living, or possibly both. Uh, And as it turned out, getting published by Marvel Comics was really hard and wasn't necessarily for me, at least not at the time. But picture books were within the realm of possibility and offer a lot more scope for variations in art style and whatnot. So it was definitely a An end goal right from very early on.
1: I write essays and and different things for adults, but writing for kids, especially like picture book, like I think people think that, oh, that'd be easy because you're writing for little kids. But really, it's difficult to write for little kids. What's your experience been as far as writing for picture books?
2: I think when I first started doing it, I had this moment of, oh, this is going to be easy. The book is only 32 pages long. How hard can this really be? And then I took a couple of writing classes specifically geared at writing for children. So that was a really good way to kind of get a head start on it. And I think, like a lot of people taking a class, they give you a structure to work within. So the first few attempts, they were not easy, but they weren't difficult either. But then actually taking those manuscripts to a publisher turned out to be a whole next level of difficult. I mean, showing them to the publisher is easy enough, but then realizing what they want and seeing your own writing through their eyes is a real eye opener because suddenly realizing, oh, they're comparing my work with Maurice Sendak or oh, wow. with Lemony Snicket or J.K. Rowling or whoever the, the case might be and you one editor actually told me because i had written a fantasy type picture book and she said are you sure you want to go here and I said yeah I love <laughs> these kind of books and she said because when I get fantasy manuscripts this is what I'm comparing it to and she pulled Where the Wild Things Are off the shelf and she said oh, wow. can you do something this good and I said <laughs> Uh, no, <laughs> yeah, I didn't think so. So maybe uh, take another stab at this and see whether you really want to do fantasy because the bar is really high. Wow. And so from that point realized, oh, wow, this is a whole other league of serious writing. that I, And I hadn't really thought of it that seriously, I guess. Aside from some people make a, a living doing this. And I want that to be me at that point. And mm-hmm. um, yeah that that's when it got really difficult and when I really started to read picture books critically and kind of think okay could I write this what is it about this book that makes it work and started to really read picture books critically and like deconstruct them and dissect them and I would do things like open a book and then type the manuscript out so that I could read it without the pictures Mm. just to see how does this sound if I'm not looking at the pictures because it flows so well when I read it to little Hermione for example but she's looking at the pictures and I'm an illustrator so I'm always looking at the art too but actually reading some of those manuscripts of favorite picture books without the pictures was a real game changer for me I learned a lot just from deconstructing other people's books and And trying to figure out how much of their technique I could extrapolate and use in my own work.
0: Yeah. That's a, that's a great, uh, that's a great tip. So Hermione, you and your dad collaborated on a graphic novel series called Yorick and Bones. Can you tell our listeners just like a little explanation of those books?
3: Uh, Yeah. So it's two books. It's about a skeleton named Yorick who gets dug up by a small dog who is eventually named Bones. And the story starts where obviously Bones just wants to eat Yorick because, you know, (laughs) Yorick is a skeleton and dogs like to eat Bones. But as the story goes on, they kind of develop an unlikely friendship. And it's as well about like Yorick's journey of realizing that he's a skeleton because he isn't really aware of that at the beginning. And
1: So Yorick, the name, and and the skeleton head from Shakespeare's Hamlet. So tell us a little bit about your history with Shakespeare. How did you first experience Shakespeare?
3: I think I was around eight or nine. I went to, I believe, like a workshop at a local library. We were talking about Shakespeare or like theater or something. Anyways, we were talking about Romeo and Juliet. And it made somewhat of an impression. And I was at the bookstore with my dad and he was looking for something specific. But I found myself in the Shakespeare section and I found this really beautiful copy of Romeo and Juliet. It had a pink cover and like really nice writing on the front, like calligraphy. And I was like, I need to read this book. And I managed to convince my dad to buy me a book, which luckily... He was like, Well, as far as gifts go, I mean it's a book,
0: right?
2: Barbie, <laughs> um, be it for me to deny my child a copy of Romeo and Juliet at the age of nine. <laughs> so,
0: was it like so a I children's tried. version or was no, it, no. It, it was the it, it version? Script.
3: It was the script okay. of the play. And I read that as like a fun bedtime reading for a few weeks and I didn't really understand all of it, but I did really like it. Like, I was very confused about what was happening, but I kind of got into it after a while. And from there, you know, I really liked Shakespeare. And I think the language of Shakespeare is so interesting because it's, like, very old-fashioned and stuff. And it can be kind of hard to understand. But I think you don't really have to understand all of it, if that makes sense. Especially, like, when I've been lucky enough to actually see the plays performed, obviously, it all becomes very clear what's going on, Mm -hmm. but even just reading them, I think sometimes the words and the rhythm are so beautiful that it makes up for the fact that I don't know exactly what they're saying. So yeah, that was what got me into Shakespeare when I was about eight or nine.
2: I think the funny thing was like being in a bookstore with Hermione and my go-to section of the bookstore has always been the graphic novel section. So I was probably looking at like some collection of Avengers comics or Fantastic Four. (laughs) And then go and find my 9-year-old looking at the Shakespeare section. <laughs> I'm like, huh. I'm a mature one here. <laughs> but I think Hermione touches on something actually really interesting about Shakespeare because I loved reading Shakespeare in high school and there was something about maybe the highfalutin nature of it. Like, oh, this is this secret language that's accessible only to like literary elite. and we get to read this. But I also did a lot of theater in high school, so I was introduced to Shakespeare through performing it, which gave me a real insight when we were forced to read it in English class. And I think because I'd done a whole lot of it on stage at that point, reading it wasn't quite as a daunting a task. But Hermione, like she has a real interest in opera and performing opera. And I think opera is kind of similar and like it's made to be performed. Like I don't mm-hmm. particularly love listening to opera when I hear it on the radio. Mm -hmm. But there's something about seeing it live when you think, oh, this makes sense. These big dramatic arias, they're beautiful and they're entertaining to watch. And there's all this other stuff going on other than just the voice and the, the orchestra. And I think Shakespeare is really similar. Like there's a lot more than just the words on the page, but it's what the actor is doing and what they're able to coax out of those words through their action, through their body language, through their facial expression. So I think Definitely, a lot of people would yeah. probably enjoy Shakespeare so much more if they were presented with professional actors or watching it in a movie formats.
0: So who came up with the idea of having Yorick, the skull from Shakespeare's Hamlet, as the protagonist for a book? And how did the other person react to that idea?
3: So the, the book was originally going to be called Scully and Bones, and I had nothing to do with it. It was very much my dad's project but he brought me on board because I could write in iambic pentameter and uh, we thought it would be really funny if the skeleton spoke in iambic pentameter and he just came up to me one day like came bounding out of his studio and said like what if the skeleton was called Yorick like the skull in Hamlet (laughs) and I was like oh my god I love it so yeah that was where the name came in I think
2: If you can pardon the extremely terrible pun, it was uh, a Uh, (laughs) no-brainer.
0: The perfect dad joke right there. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly.
2: But yeah, I'd written this book about a skeleton who gets dug up and consumed by, or attempted, consumed by a small dog. But it was actually my agent who packaged this whole thing because she knew of Hermione's love of Shakespeare and Hermione had actually done a a retelling of Grumpy Bird, my first picture book. She rewrote it as a two act Shakespearean drama when she was about fourteen, just as a joke. I, I thought gave it, it to was my... so
3: funny, and then everyone <laughs> took it way too far.
2: Well, it was. It was hilarious. <laughs> it was melodramatic and ridiculous, and it was, and it was so good. And then Holly, my agent, she thought it was hilarious and took it very seriously because I'd been struggling on this book for such a long time at that point, she said, how do you feel about collaborating with your daughter? Because I think she's a fantastic writer and she's got this weird gift for iambic pentameter. Maybe the only thing your story needs is to be retold through a totally different voice than the voice that you've been using for all these years. And so really all Hermione did at that point was take act one of the first book and rewrite what I'd already written into iambic pentameter. But she took a lot of liberties with it, added lines, stretched things out, wrote in jokes that I hadn't even thought of. And then it it was still my story, but then it became her story and her voice being channeled through Yorick. And it worked so well. And then at that point, we're like, oh, if, if he's going to be a Shakespearean spouting skeleton, then the obvious choice is to call him Yorick because that's the only skeleton that we were aware of in a Shakespearean play. And he doesn't really have a role, which made it even better because <laughs> mm-hmm. it's not like we're trying to reinterpret the character of Juliet or something. We're just taking a a prop from a Shakespeare play and turning it into a an entire character, which was really the fun part of it.
1: Jeremy, you already had the illustrations and the story. And so Hermione was almost the translator, but then added in things to flesh the story out. Is that what I'm understanding?
0: Yeah,
2: Yeah. kind of. It was a lot more than just translation. Like She did translate, but what happened in the translation really brought such a different life to the book. Mm-hmm. And it allowed me as a writer to be a little bit more flexible in some parts of the story. And it allowed me to see the story in a very different light. So a lot of things just became possible that hadn't been possible before just because I'd never even thought of them or hadn't seen them that way before. Hmm. So it really, the end product, is it's a really weird collaboration because Hermione did translate it, but the entire voice of the book I owe to Hermione.
3: I very much viewed it as a translation at the beginning. And I thought that I was going to be credited as a translator, like in the acknowledgements. But then I took a lot of liberties, changed some stuff. And my dad was like, Okay, you're the co author now. (laughs) It's like, Oh, yay.
2: (laughs) Well, I, I learned a lot about translation through the process, because like, realizing that a good translator is more than just doing a literal retelling of it. A good translator would bring their own life kind of into the story, perhaps. But mm-hmm. this one crossed the line where it became a lot more than a translation because yes. the end product, the words on the page, are so very much Hermione mm-hmm. that she really had to have co-author status at that point, And she deserved it. Thanks. It wouldn't, <laughs> it wouldn't have been the same book without her. And I certainly couldn't have done it in iambic pentameter. No way.
1: So I feel like at this point, we need to explain iambic pentameter for our listeners who may have forgotten, whether that's intentional or not, all of their high school Shakespeare. So iambic pentameter is verse in five metric feet. So 10 syllables that follow a pattern of unstressed, then stressed. So Hermione, I'm really amazed because I cannot do it. I cannot write in iambic pentameter. So why do you think that comes easily to you? You said you started reading Romeo and Juliet when you were eight or nine. Mm -hmm. Do you think it's from reading Shakespeare or did you have to practice? Like, did you have to sit and practice and scribble and tell us a little bit about the process for you taking what your dad had written and putting that into iambic pentameter?
3: Yes. When I first started reading Shakespeare, I had no idea that iambic pentameter existed. I just vaguely noticed that there was some kind of rhythm. But when you're reading it in your head, like it doesn't always register. But I was very lucky in high school to be part of a theater program. And the director of this program gave us a lecture on like Shakespeare. And he, he mentioned iambic pentameter and explained to us how it worked. and. He just kind of explained like it's like a heartbeat, like da 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 da, and that explanation obviously because actors have to be so aware of the rhythm um, because it dictates how you say certain words and it dictates how you say the line, and that really resonated with me. And I think because I'm a very musical person, I've always been really interested in music, and I've always been really interested in language. And for me, like rhythm in poetry is just kind of this really beautiful combination of music and language. So Shakespeare isn't the only one who uses it. Like a lot of poets and a lot of playwrights use iambic pentameter, specifically in English, because it works really well with the English language. But once I realized what it was, there was some practicing involved, but I just sort of started writing things in iambic pentameter for fun. And it just kind of, I wouldn't say it necessarily came 100% 100% naturally, like I had to practice, but I would say that I was predisposed to mm. be drawn to it, if
1: that makes sense. Yeah,
2: absolutely. I say Hermione also played with Shakespeare a little bit earlier as well, not so much through iambic pentameter, her, but she used to do this hilarious retelling of a, a monologue by Juliet in like American Valley Girl. I think. <laughs> <laughs> which was so ludicrous and hilarious and still kind of Shakespeare, but also like so Valley Girl American. And she was doing that like at thirteen or fourteen, though so I, I think 10. she was figuring out how you could play with the language of Shakespeare really early. So I think by the time she had this teacher explaining the, the heartbeat of the language, she was ready to hear it, maybe.
0: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I want to know what it was like to collaborate with each other. So Jeremy, I know you've illustrated books with other authors, but it's different yeah. when it's your daughter. There's a the whole parent-child thing going on there. So did you have to set up parameters on how your collaboration would work? Or was it just something that you talked about, like over the dinner table or after you'd asked her to take out the trash or do the dishes? How did that work?
2: There were not like strict parameters around it. Mm -hmm. Hermione agreed to do this when my agent had pitched the idea and I didn't actually want to do this book with anyone else because at that point I'd spent probably six years working on it and rewriting it over and over again but when she pitched the idea of working with Hermione I thought well that's if there's anybody who I'm willing to share this thing with after all these years it is Hermione just because it would be fun and as an author and as a dad just how much fun is it to share this kind of really both personal and professional thing that I do for a living how fun is it to share with your own kid who is at an age where they're old enough to really appreciate it and kind of think hey I'm getting to be a part of this thing and I don't know if that's how you felt about it Hermione but
0: it
3: is yeah yeah Like, I think there were times where I almost viewed it as like a chore because I was in high school and I was like, oh, I already have to write essays for school. But then I would remember like, this isn't an essay. This is something I've agreed to. And it's my dad's project and he cares so much about it and he spent so long on it. And it's a project that I really, really love. I love the story and I loved everything that my dad had set up about it. I think the first time I read the script, I was like, damn, how am I going to improve this? Oh, so thanks, Ryan. It was a really personal project. And yeah, I don't think we ever sat down and like talked about parameters. It always came up very like, organically, I guess. Mm-hmm. My dad works from home, so like, if he needed to talk to me, like... I didn't really have much of a social life in high school. He would just come find me. <laughs>
1: <laughs> you didn't have to make an appointment with with yeah, him to <laughs> exactly.
2: We made appointments with the coffee shop.
3: It's true. Yeah. We we did write at coffee shops a lot.
0: Well, as a parent of children who were recently teenagers, what a gift to be able to do that with your daughter too, because I found when my kids were that age, I was searching for something that we could do together or some way to help bond us because oftentimes Mm -hmm. that's an age where things can be difficult and it's nice to have something that you share that you can bond. So what a great gift that was.
2: Yeah. I I would say Hermione and I have always got along really well, like Mm -hmm. any parent-child relationship there's going to be ups and downs especially through the teenage years but communication lines are always open and i think we've always enjoyed each other's company so it was never a chore to hang out and she was fun to discuss things with especially working on book two of this because hermione had read so much shakespeare and she was in her older teens at that point so it was really fun to say okay I've got this idea. What do you think about having a scene with the witches from Macbeth? And Hermione would get really excited because they don't speak in iambic pentameter. They speak in rhyming couplets. And so I would run things past her and she'd be excited. Oh, I know that character. I know what I could do with that. That would be really fun. You have to include something about soup whatever the the thing might be. She's like, she saw all the possibilities that I didn't see.
3: Bouncing up and down excitedly at the dinner table.
0: In the second book, Jeremy, did you write the book and then she would come in and make it into the Shakespeare mode? Or did Hermione, you just do that from the beginning? And so you sort of wrote it together.
3: The first book obviously was so clearly set up because he'd been working on it for so long. The second book, I had a bit of input on the story, you know, like we discussed it a lot. He wrote, a bare bones script, if that makes sense. That was in like my final year of high school. So I had very little free time, I wanted to be involved more, but it worked out the way it did. And he kind of created like this very basic script for me. And then I, I guess, kind of like embellished it a lot. And he was very clear about like, what he wanted to draw in that book as well.
1: So I know, Jeremy, you said your agent from the first book had the idea of writing it like Shakespeare. So was there a concern just because, you know, Shakespeare seems like can feel very scary to people. So at any point, did you or Hermione or your agent worry how our audiences going to receive this? And do you think that it being a graphic novel makes Shakespeare a little less intimidating?
2: Yeah, I, I don't know. It's a hard one to answer. Shakespeare, I think, is universally feared by high school students because <laughs> it's it's difficult language. But as far as like the books are concerned, I try not to think too, too much about the, the greater audience when I'm working on a project because I guess as the author, I am the first audience and I have some level of trust that if I enjoy it, there's probably someone else out there who will also enjoy it.
3: Yeah, like it will find its audience, right?
2: Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I trust that if a publisher is making an offer on the book, that they see potential there. And I know they're also taking a risk every time they buy a book from an author. There's a risk that, well, we like it, but is the audience actually going to like it? Does it have an audience? But my agent actually put it really well. Um, And my editor, they, they said, the really fun thing about these books is they are not retelling... original shakespeare play so you don't have the baggage of hamlet or macbeth or romeo and juliet attached to it and because they're aimed at a much younger audience the really fun part about it is it's almost like we're giving kids the key to unlock this magical very high literary very adult thing that it's for grown-ups but how fun is it as a kid to kind of be given the keys to this grown up thing and have some ownership of it as well? And Hermione's I Am McPentameter is so much more accessible than reading Macbeth, for example. Like she's not using big old English words, and yet she's using enough of the old English words and vocabulary, and she's got the authentic iambic pentameter rhythm going on that it reads and sounds like real Shakespeare but yet it's more accessible to kids and to adults honestly like I think anybody could could enjoy these books even if they don't love Shakespeare maybe especially if they don't love Shakespeare Mm
0: -hmm. (laughs) yeah yeah
2: so yeah I I think that the audience is broad
0: Well, we love them.
1: Well, thank you both so much. It has been so fascinating hearing about your all's processes and collaboration. We are going to take a short break. And when we come back, we're all going to talk about what we're reading.
0: We are back with Carrie and Jeremy and Hermione. We have a full house today and we're going to talk about what we're reading. So what's up, Carrie?
1: So I picked up a book, we have a a Scandinavian bakery here locally, and I I don't know if this was the first place I saw it, but it's called The Moomins, M-O-O-M-I-N-S, The Moomins. And so I had seen an illustration or a book there, and I ended up picking up the book Comet in Moominland at the Bookworks book sale. They had recently. My mom and I went. And so this book is actually the second book in the series. It's by a Finnish writer named Tova Jansen. So I I had a couple feelings about it. I enjoyed it. It is a kid's book, it's illustrated. And there are these, you know, kind of odd characters. The Moomin sort of look like hippos a little bit and then there's a a couple other strange little characters in it and so it's very whimsical and in this story there is a comet that is approaching their planet which i guess is earth but i'm not entirely sure it seems earth-ish and they are trying to get information about it so they go on a journey And there's this one part where because the comet is coming so close to the earth, the waters of the ocean have like receded or dried up. And so they walk on stilts at the bottom of the ocean because they're trying to get somewhere. And so it's very again whimsical. It it creates these wonderful images in your head. In some ways it reminded me a little bit of the Phantom Tollbooth, just in terms of it's very descriptive and it takes you into this land that's kind of magical. The problem that I personally had with the book has nothing to do with the book. It's the problem is me. So there was a movie that came out called Melancholia. It was from 2011 and it is an apocalyptic movie and it's about how the moon gets off course and is getting ready to slam into the earth. <laughs> and so as True. I was reading this book, Comet in Land, I was having like flashbacks of that movie, which freaked me out. And so I don't think a child or any adult who hasn't seen that movie is going to be fine reading this book. But as I was reading the book, I kept thinking about that movie. I'll I'll give you the spoiler. The comet brushes by the planet and goes off on its merry way. And, you know, it's a children's book. So everything works out in the end. But the whole time I kept reading it thinking that something terrible was going to happen. And I blame that. 2011 film on (laughs) me finding this book way more stressful than it should have been so anyway i would recommend it it just if you have read the fan toll booth if you like whimsy so
0: i have a couple questions first of all when you say it's a children's book like what age are you talking
1: uh, third, fourth, fifth grade. And, and depending on the reader, I mean, you know, if you have a second grader who's a strong reader, it's a chapter book. It okay. is not a picture book, but it does have illustrations more than than what a normal chapter book would have.
0: The second thing is, you said this is second in the series. Is, does each book stand alone? Or did you feel like you were missing something because you started with number two instead no. of reading number one?
1: No, I didn't. It's a fairly simple story. There's there's Moomin Mama and Moomin Papa and Moomin Troll, their child. I mean, it's a kid's book, so it, it's pretty self-explanatory. You know, there wasn't anything that complicated it and felt like I didn't know what was going on.
2: I love the Moomins just for their kind of very matter-of-fact way that they deal with everything that's thrown at them. They're, all, they're kind of quirky and funny and weird. I think the magic for kids is that a lot of the situations they find themselves in are very much It's sometimes very fantastical, but a kid knows what's going on. Mm -hmm. But the fun is that the Moomins don't really know what's going on. And they have these kind of weird reactions to whatever they're doing. And I think as a kid, you're probably thinking, oh, come on. That's not how you're supposed to do it. And yet it's really fun watching how they do whatever it is they do, tackling whatever problem is being thrown at them.
1: So we'll start with uh, Hermione. What have you been reading? Are you able to read anything for fun since you're (laughs) Um, in the thick of college?
3: uh, I haven't been reading a lot since the school year started. I would say some of my favorite books that have been my favorite since high school. One of them is called 10 Things I Can See From Here. It's by Vancouver-based author Carrie Mack. And it's a really beautiful novel about a teenage girl with a very severe anxiety disorder who is navigating like family and romantic relationships and such. And I don't know, it's a really good book and I really enjoy it. I would say it's definitely for like teenagers and young adults. And then another book that I really enjoy is called All the Bad Apples. It's by Irish author Moira Fowley Doyle I really enjoy it because it's based in realism but you don't always know what's real and what isn't and it's about history and very recent history in Ireland I, I don't want to spoil it I think it's a very good book and a very feminist book as well
2: Jeremy how about you um, I never know what to tell people about what I'm reading because I've, having gone from reluctant reader, I'm still a really <laughs> slow reader. So I get through books at a pretty much a snail's pace. But having talked earlier about giving myself permission to read pulp books, I guess, I've been loving James S.A. Corey's The Expanse books. They're like space opera, Star Wars y kind of thing. And they were made into a miniseries, I think, on. Prime video, maybe. Hmm. Anyway, I love the books. They're real page turners. They're just big grand space adventure. Uh, they're really fun. They touch uh, ha- on everything from global politics to racism to I, I really like the sort of world that they've built, which touches on different kinds of relationships that people have and yet never makes an issue of it. Like the story is the the big grand space adventure. And the fact that a couple of characters might be gay is like it's not even really mentioned, except that you kind of realize that they are, but nobody cares about it. So it's kind of refreshing to read from that point of view. The miniseries was beautifully cast with this very sort of multinational mixed race cast, which also plays into the the books, which the characters often have names that are very sort of mixed race, like Middle Eastern combined with Asian, African combined with Western, um, just because it's set far enough in the future that I guess they have this idea of it everybody is so intermarried and intermixed at that point that some of the the things that are are issues are no longer issues i guess except that then there's still all the evils of humanity are still there as well but really at the end of the day it's just a really fun romp through outer space with weird alien technology and <laughs> a, a grand plot and there's one more book coming i think i just finished book eight i think book nine is oh to wow the last one. i was um, gonna say
1: i was looking it up there's a ton and some of them are even like they have one, two, but then there's a 2.5 and a 3.5. So it looks like there's a ton to keep you satisfied. It's (laughs) It's a a commitment. commitment.
2: (laughs) But I cannot wait for the next one. And then I read a ton of comics as well. Recently discovered a manga artist named Inio Asano, who I love, 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 love his work. It's fairly adult, I guess, or late teen. He touches on a lot of themes. There's often mental health issues touched upon in his books, but the one I'm really enjoying is a series called Dead, Dead Demons, D-D-D-D-Destruction. Funny stutter (laughs) in in the title of the book, and it's an ongoing series. It's really about a little group of teenage girls who finished high school and worrying about their life in the future, but it's set to a, a back of an alien invasion that's been going on for years, but these girls are kind of just going about their life. And then every once in a while, the current events of this invasion interfere with their plans for university or socializing. So I, I really love it. His art in particular is what got me reading them. He uses a ton of photography in his backgrounds. I mean, they're all kind of converted into black and white illustrations and heavily reworked by... I'm sure a team of assistants, but it gives a really gritty, very realistic backdrop to this surreal invasion that's going on and makes it all kind of grounds it in something more real. And yet also for a manga artist, he's got a very different, very unique style. That is not your typical manga style, which I'm really enjoying.
1: I am always happy to hear about manga. Uh, I have a 14 year old and he loves manga.
2: What I love about manga is the huge variety that they have. I think a much wider variety than we have in North American comics. Like they have comics for literally everyone. Mm -hmm. You want a comic book about playing tennis? They've got one. You want one (laughs) about being in a rock band? They've got one. You want one about alien invasions? There's a ton of those. they got Westerns. They've got literally every genre you could possibly think of and more. When I was growing up, really my only choices were Marvel and DC comics. Right. More variety now, but like the choice was Spider-Man or Batman. Those are both really kind of the same the same genre. Right. So it's a, it's really refreshing that manga. That's probably why manga has caught on the way it has here. It's just there's such variety and I think there's things that speak to teens now that that Western comics didn't offer years ago. And now they're starting to catch up and say, Hey, wait a minute. (laughs) Kids are all reading these manga things. Let's see what they've got to offer. And maybe we can offer it too.
1: Well, Amy, what have you been reading over your place?
0: So I just finished an audiobook called Under the Egg by Laura Marks Fitzgerald. And this is a middle grade book, came out in 2014. I'd never heard of this book, so it wasn't like it's a book that was on my TBR. But I was scrolling through Libby looking for an audiobook to listen to. The description of this book intrigued me, and I decided to give it a try. I'm so glad I did because I just love this book. So in Under the Egg, what we have is a main character, Theodora Tenpenny, who lives in a once-magnificent brownstone and Greenwich Village that has been in her family for generations. But with each generation, the family becomes a little bit poorer until we get to Theo and her mother, who only have $382 to their names. And they lived with Theo's grandfather, who was an artist, but he was recently hit by a car and he died. And his last words to Theo were, look under the egg. So the home has become shabby. Theo has to be the adult in the house because Theo's mom, you get the sense that she has a mental illness of some sort, such that she doesn't want to deal with reality. She doesn't want to go outside their home. So she sits in her room all day and works on complicated math theorems for a doctorate that she's been plugging away at for decades and most likely will never finish. So Theo is left trying to figure out how to pay their bills. So one day, Theo takes down a picture that hung over the mantel That was something that her grandfather had painted, and it was a painting of an egg. And so she's looking under the painting because she remembers what her grandfather had said, to look under the egg. And when she lays the painting down in her grandfather's painting workshop, she accidentally splashes some rubbing alcohol on it. And suddenly the egg disappears, but there's another painting and underneath it becomes visible. And the more she looks at it, the more Theo thinks that this work of art looks like something from the Renaissance. She's actually quite knowledgeable about art. Her grandfather had been a security guard at the Metropolitan Museum of Art. So this is the beginning of a mystery that Theo and her new friend from next door, Bodie, try to solve. What is this painting and how did her grandfather get it? And is it worth anything? Because she sure could use the money. So Theo and Bodie travel around New York City and they find pieces to the puzzle from various adults that they run into, like the spice nut vendor near her house or the hippie Episcopalian minister. And then there's the new young hip librarian at the New York Public Library. So in the process, the reader learns all kinds of things, like the chemistry of different kinds of paints, the significance of the different types of Madonna and child paintings during the Renaissance and World War II, just to name a few. As I was reading this book, I was so excited about it. I emailed friends of mine who are artists to recommend it to them, and I even emailed the educational director of our local art museum because I thought she would enjoy it too. The author studied art history at Harvard and Cambridge, so I would assume that she knows her stuff. This is a middle grade book, but I definitely think it's one that adults will appreciate as well. Theo needs to act like an adult because of her circumstances, and she is smart and resourceful. So I think adults will appreciate this book as much as middle school and high schoolers. As far as what age level this is for, unless you have a very advanced elementary school child, I don't think that this will work as well for like a fourth or a fifth grader, even if they are reading above their grade level, just because some of the art topics require some analytical abilities. But I thought that the audio of this was very good, too. So if if you prefer listening to your books, I would give this a try. But I gave it five stars and I just really love this book.
1: All right. Well, we are going to take a quick break. And when we come back, we're going to ask Jeremy and Hermione their three about me.
0: We are back with Jeremy and Hermione, and we're going to do the three about me. So, Jeremy, you have an interest in Kung Fu. And when I think of Kung Fu, I think of that song Kung Fu Fighting from the 1970s or the animated film Kung Fu Panda. So explain what Kung Fu really is and how long have you done it and what do you like about it?
2: Okay, I've done it for about 16 years. Kung Fu is an umbrella term that encompasses almost all of the Chinese martial arts. But what most people think of when they hear kung fu is actually a martial art called wushu, which you would see in a Jet Li movie and some Jackie Chan movies. Wushu is really big and flashy. There are probably, I would guess, hundreds of different forms of kung fu. The one I do is called Wing Chun. It is a very small, very compact, very easy system to learn. It's not big and flashy. It doesn't look impressive on a movie screen. And I started doing it many years ago. I've had a lifelong fear of violence, physical violence. I don't know why. I guess leading a very sheltered, very wonderful life. I've seen very little violence, experienced very little of it. So for me, I started doing Kung Fu as a way of trying to overcome this feeling of... uh, fear of violence, but what ended up happening was I started doing it thinking, well, I'll do this for a few weeks, learn something about it, and then I'll quit having overcome my fear. But what ended up happening was it was really empowering. It just became part of my weekly life. I mean, Hermione was, was young at the time, and it's just kind of this really nice break from both my professional and personal life. I'd go to the gym twice a week and hang out with these really lovely people and do something that didn't involve a lot of talking. And I didn't know them professionally or personally. So it made for a very different conversation than I had anywhere else in my life. It just became this really nice couple hour holiday from life. It would get me recharged and energized and ready to be a, a good dad and a good husband again. And Clear the cobwebs out. Now now I teach it. And Wing Chun as a martial art is a really fun one to do because it, as far as we know, historically it's the only martial art in the world created by a woman.
0: <gasps> oh, that's yeah. intriguing.
2: And the first student of Wing Chun was a woman as well. So it was created by a Buddhist nun rather than a Buddhist monk, which who were the ones who practiced most forms of Kung Fu. And she created this martial art specifically for women. And I think for one particular person whose name was Yim Wing Chun, who she named the martial art after because Hmm. she was the first student of the martial art.
0: That's
1: fascinating. Yeah. All right, Hermione, your question. So you started writing the York and Bones books with your dad when you were in high school. Yeah. And now you're in college. So what has been a class that you have taken that you had to take and maybe didn't want to, but you ended up enjoying? Maybe a class that exceeded your expectations and surprised you?
3: I would say I've generally enjoyed my college classes and expected to enjoy them because I'm in a music program. So, you know, I'm there to study what I love, I guess. But weirdly enough, in high school, my favorite mandatory class wasn't English or French which were like, I guess, the creative classes, but my favorite class was actually math for a lot of years. And it's funny, because I'm a very artistic person. But I really liked high school math, because math became very much a puzzle. And obviously, it wasn't all fun, because it was high school math. But (laughs) like, I would get really absorbed in like math questions. And I really started to enjoy like figuring them out and learning these new concepts that were so like abstract. And I don't know, I think like music and math and language have a lot in common. Like math can be kind of used creatively and it it impacts a lot of creative things. And I wasn't expecting to enjoy high school math, but I did.
0: You said you love music, but there is a connection between music and math.
3: Oh, definitely. Definitely. Yeah. When I was in my first year of university, I had to take Western music theory courses, I think actually for the first two years. And certainly in first year, Western music theory, like European music theory, is very mathematical. I say European music theory because I don't really know a lot about non-Western music theory, but... Specifically, the type that I learned, it's kind of like doing a math problem, like figuring out the rules and stuff, except it's it is much more, I think, prescriptive than math. Like there are rules you have to follow. And I didn't really like all the rules. But of course, it's music. So you can be creative with it, I guess. Learning music theory and learning math was kind of a very similar experience for me.
0: Okay, so this last question is sort of for the both of you. So dads often have a terrible habit of telling the worst possible jokes So what is the best or worst, depending on how you want to think about it, dad joke that your dad or someone in your house has told? I make better dad jokes than him not to
2: (laughs) She does, it's true. Hermione is so good at puns. Uh, Uh, Hermione just drives her mom crazy over dinner. She'll just zing off all kinds of really stupid comments. (laughs) Heather sometimes, she's like, oh my god, you two, just cut it out, because I laugh every time. And
3: my brother, too, sometimes, like, I take things very literally, which makes it very easy to make puns and terrible jokes. So I think me and my dad and my brother, we all think it's hilarious. And my mom just gets very annoyed. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my
2: God, you guys. Cut it out. I think the best one that that I can think of that I've managed to, to pull off on Hermione when she was... In her early teens and really easy to embarrass, was I was cleaning out under a sink in one of the bathrooms and found an old pull-on diaper from when the kids were small. And I was like, oh, sweet. And I put it on my head like a hat and walked out of the bathroom and said, hey, Hermione, I'm just going to go outside and tap dance on the front porch. <laughs> And I did, and Hermione screamed, just like, no, don't do it. Being a good gag, I used him more than once, like coming out of the somewhere with a diaper on my head and saying, Well, I'm just gonna go for a jog, Hermione. And I'd run out of the house and up the street and she'd go, No, cut it out.
1: He
3: looks too much like me. I can't I can't <laughs> pretend I'm not related to him. <laughs>
2: it's true
1: you still collaborated with him on the york and bones book so yes
3: we're friends
1: (laughs) (laughs) i'm glad the diaper escapades did not thwart the creative endeavors
3: yeah i'm very lucky to have a dad that i get along so well with i think
0: Well, you all are delightful. We have enjoyed so much talking with you you on this rainy day. Thanks so much for joining us and telling us all about your books and about you.
2: Well, thank you so much for having us.
3: Yeah, thank you. This was was lovely.
0: You can find out more about Jeremy Tankert's books, including the ones he created with Hermione, at his website, jeremytankert.com, and on his Instagram, at jeremytankboy. Thanks for joining us this week. Follow us on Facebook at the Perks of Being a Book Lover or on Instagram at Perks of Being a Book Lover pod to see what we're up to. For show notes for any episode, go to our website at www.perksofbeingabooklover.com. The show notes are also included on the description of the episode on your podcast player. We have a new updated website that has some great new features, including listener book recommendations and pictures of our guest pets. So come by and take a look. A huge thank you to Forward Radio 106.5 FM, a grassroots community radio station in Louisville, Kentucky. You can find our show there live or in archives at forwardradio.org.